Today's show is sponsored by Miracle Made. And oh my God, you guys, you know that I love a luxurious set of sheets. And I now have such a set of sheets because of a miracle made. They are bedding that has been inspired by NASA. They've got silver infused fabrics that actually make temperature regulating a thing. Uh, so you're not like getting too hot or too cold or whatever, you know, the whole thing that happens with your body's temperature losing its mind. Miracle made helps with that. One of the little things that my husband particularly loves about Miracle Made is that it like doesn't have as much bacteria as regular sheets because of it's infused with this silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth. So it leaves the sheets cleaner for longer. And then the thing for my husband is that it doesn't give him acne, which is like an issue for some people. But more than all of that, it's just luxuriously comfortable and delightful. And it has that cooling feeling while also being cozy. Very hard to achieve those two things at the same time. I mean, miracle made, come on, well done. So here's what I think you should do. I think you should go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and buy some sheets today. And if you order today, you can save 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation at the checkout and you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. So there's just a lot of savings here, folks. Order today, you'll get 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation. And Miracle's so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30 day money back guarantee. So if you're not 100% satisfied, which I don't see happening, um, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and use the code fake the nation to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash fake the nation to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. Fake the Nation, episode 210. Hello, hello, this is Fake the Nation, where we talk about news, we talk about politics, and where we marvel at presidential candidate Kanye West. That's a real statement I just made, because America is fun. I am your host, Nagin Farsad, and today we're going to talk about uh, some embarrassment uh, that the president has unleashed on us, um, which is something I could say basically every show. We'll do a check-in on the state of Black Lives Matter and police reform, and we'll finally talk about the cancel culture articles that everybody else was talking about last week. Um, I I am joined. Oh, this panel is like a warm blanket on a fall's day or a gentle sprinkler on a summer's day is what this panel is. Um, I'm so excited because they're both alums. I don't I don't even have to host the show. Basically, I have two panelists that can just do the show and I could just sit here and enjoy the show. Uh, coming to us for the millionth time, he has four albums on iTunes because he's a prolific motherfucker. Um, I've seen him, I know I've said this before, but I've seen him kill all over the city and it's true. I, I say it because it's fucking true. He has uh, his latest album, which you should absolutely be downloading immediately. It's called 60% Joking. You can get that on iTunes. And you guys, it's Christian Finnegan. Hey, Christian. Hi, Nagin. That was such a lovely intro. Oh, <laughs> it is all true. Um, I am also joined by, uh, well, 
to make this podcast a Persian sandwich, which is my favorite kind of sandwich. Um, you've heard him on this podcast 1,000 other times. He is um, the upcoming host of Fraudsters, which is a podcast that will be on Spotify. It's coming out before Labor Day. I'm counting down the days because this podcast will be great. I'm just certain of it because this guy is so fantastic. He's so funny. He's so charming. He's just a great chatty motherfucker. You guys, it's <laughs> Sina Ghaznavi. Hey, Sina. Hi, Nagin Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Um, Let us launch in with topic number one. Okay, so this week we got a lot of Donnie. He was all up on the TV cameras. And here is one memorable moment from a, an interview he did with Chris Wallace. I think it's the opposite. I think we have one of the lowest mortality it's rates true, in the sir. world. We, well, we, we're going to we take have, a look. We had 900 deaths on a single day. We will this, take a look. This week. Ready? I, you, you can Could check you it out. Could you please get me the mortality rate? Yeah. Kaylee's right here. I heard we had one of the lowest, maybe the lowest mortality rate anywhere in the world. Do you have the numbers, please? Because I heard we had the best mortality rate. Number number one low mortality rate. I hope you show the scenario because it shows what fake news is all about. Okay, okay go I don't ahead. think I'm fake news, but okay. I will, we'll put well, our there you are. we'll put our stats. You on. said we had the worst mortality rate in the world, I and we have the best. The all right, it's a little complicated, rate. but bear with us. We went with numbers from Johns Hopkins University. Okay, so um, the Chris Wallace interview is just chock full of moments like that. It's really funny, um, especially if you're tired of rewatching The Office and you're looking for some other like 30 minute comedic programming. Um, but he uh, he basically but, Don, but that wasn't the only, you know, case of the Donnies that we saw this week. We also um, saw him restarting the coronavirus task force briefings but with just him. Uh, so what did you guys make of this uptick in coronavirus and an uptick in Donnie this week? Uh, what are your takeaways? You know, I, I think that uh, one under-discussed aspect of this era is Trump as sort of the content generator-in-chief. You know, that <laughs> we, we live in this world where there's just this constant grist of like, What's the thing we're all joking about, you know? Uh, yeah. And sometimes what you're joking about at nine o'clock in the morning by one o'clock in the afternoon feels done already. And I will say, and I say this not even sarcastically, this dude knows how to just continue to churn out wacko moments. And I I hate that that is so effective, but I He's think- He's a YouTube star. Yeah, and I, I think that- up until coronavirus, which was something you can't finesse, I think for a lot of people who aren't, you know, directly affected by Trump's policies, there is this sort of just constant, it's like a show that you can just watch and there's always a new episode. And there's even if you hate him, there's always a new thing that you're joking about and passing around to your friends. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a really awful aligning of the planets that the most, you know, verbal diuretic person in the history of the world happened to come along at the moment where people were as interested in verbal diarrhea. <laughs> I don't know if that makes you know, sense. Cena. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Cena, uh, your way of saying, your ways of saying diarrhea. <laughs> mm, tasty. <laughs> uh, you know, I actually watched 
or tried to watch this entire interview. Normally when I watch uh, Donald Trump speak, I am I get triggered and I'm like, I get anxious and I can't go to sleep. I actually fell asleep to this entire interview last night. <laughs> I watched, it was like a lullaby. That's where we are at in this entire presidency where I don't, it, I am so numb to it. It is like a smooth, like crashing water. <laughs> like the sounds <laughs> It's your, you it's your headspace app. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and it's like it's like he shows up to an open book exam and he's like, no, nah, I don't need the books. I don't need the books. And then he sees the question. And he's like, oh, right, let me look at the book. All right. Maybe uh, maybe it wasn't right. But then he doubles down and it says the wrong answer anyways when he sees it that he's totally wrong. I mean, these coronavirus numbers, how many backflips can he do to try to run away from the fact that he costs thousands of lives? It'll just be a constant thing. And as Christian said, he is a constant engine of these of these wits or, or little absurdisms that he keeps trying to say. I, I honestly, I, not to go back to something I said maybe three years ago and a lot of other people have said, how this man is not on stimulants, I don't know. There is just no way he's not on something. Mm, mm, true. Um, I uh, I want to point out too that he's. This is just sh- shitty gossip, guys. Because, and I oftentimes don't even really like cover these interviews or really, you know, want to talk about them that much because they're meaningless. I just, I just did think this week we saw a lot of him, and it felt like very. You know, it it felt hard to not talk about. But the shitty gossip moment is he's really obsessed with talking about the cognitive test. Um, And I don't know if you I don't know if in your slumber, Cena, you caught wind of the cognitive test. But that was only the first time he talked about the cognitive test this week. He's talked about it elsewhere. Um, But basically, it was just like, it's a really hard test. And you would have probably they're the last five questions. You probably wouldn't have gotten them right. Chris Wallace, you know, Um, and I guess in the last five questions there's maybe you have to repeat a series of words or something um and you have to like count backwards by seven from a hundred or whatever um and uh and so he's talked about this now (laughs) multiple times he's upset i've I've heard him talk about it at least five times even before this week and uh yeah yeah you know he seems to think and i'm not the first person to make this observation but he seems to think that this is like an IQ test and that if you do really well on it, it makes you exceptional. <laughs> this is a pass-fail test that most elderly people have to take. You either are showing signs of dementia or you're not. And so, you know, we'll even at even if we trust him that he passed, which I don't, uh, because it was administered, I think, by Ronnie Jackson, that what the doctor who said that he was like the picture of health and, you know, could bench press a, right, right, a right, right, Mack right. truck. But uh it's a pass-fail thing. You either get it right or you don't. There's no <laughs> I did better than person X. It's like you either get you either show signs of dementia or you don't. I no, think, yeah. I he really you, does think it's an IQ test. I think if you fail it, they'll still give you a driver's license. <laughs> I, I don't think <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, oh, um, I, I did really well in the test. Afterwards they gave me a lollipop. <laughs> well, I mean it, it's it's also funny because the the, you know, the tenuous relationship between him talking about these tests is that it's a it's a campaign strategy because he thinks he can sell this point that um, Joe Biden has cognitive decline and that he doesn't. Right. So he's con- that I think that's like the idea behind him constantly mentioning it is to point out some difference between him and Joe Biden. Um But it's interesting because I think the only thing it really does is to point out how much he's talking about this test 
without making the connection to Joe Biden, you know? Um, I mean, obviously, he he tries to make the t- connection, but I don't think that's what's sticking. I think what's sticking is, and like what was trending on Twitter, not that Twitter fucking matters, but one of the things that was trending on Twitter was like, um, one was the cognitive test, uh, not, you know, again, not that Joe Biden may be in cognitive decline. So, I mean, I think, and also... This whole thing really about him appearing more, and he said that the coronavirus task force briefings are going to happen more regularly now, again, um, is, again, it's a campaign strategy. He can't do his rallies, so he's going to figure out these other ways to do them. By the way, um, when he was asked where Burks is, he said she was standing outside during the task force briefing, and Fauci, uh, we found out later, was not invited. Um, So... You know, his approval rating has fallen um, 28 points since March, obviously, because of his handling of the coronavirus. He now has 60 percent disapproval rating of the job he's doing. Uh, will will his reappearance on the public stage give him a, a boost? I mean, is is the strategy going to work? It's week one, it seems like, of this strategy. Well, to, to use a, a, a metaphor that, that maybe he would relate to, he doesn't have a whole lot of clubs in his golf bag, like strategically. It's like <laughs> he has like a giant iron and like a putter and that's it. You, you know what I mean? And so it's like he really doesn't have anywhere else to go in terms of strategy. And so it's like, I can try doing these press conferences. I can try not doing these press conferences. Oh, that's not working? I guess I'll do these press conferences again. It's not like he has any, you know, policy initiatives. I mean, the only initiative he has is to try to create chaos, you know, so we can have Jack Boots go cracking skulls. I mean, that's the that's the only thing he can do to distract from just how completely impotent he is from a public health standpoint. But Cena, we've this week he was also a little bit more serious about the virus. He said, "I will probably unfor- it'll probably unfortunately get worse before it gets better." Um, he was telling people to avoid uh, packed bars. Um, he was encouraging people to wear masks. Uh, he said he carries a mask with him and puts it on if he's in an elevator. Um, wh- I mean, is that seriousness? Uh, First of all, what do you attribute the seriousness to? And do you think that's going to play or like actually help the situation from the mixed messages that we've gotten before? I want to give the benefit of the doubt to someone in that administration showing him the numbers that his actions are killing his own voters. And there are actually <laughs> fewer people, the people that are, that are anti-masking this whole thing that are actually dying, that trucker from a few months ago that was a huge uh, anti-mask advocate. Then a few days later, he got coronavirus, put up a video saying goodbye to his daughter, and then he passed away. There are people that drank this this um, uh, Clorox or whatever that are passing away that said Trump saw it on Fox News. Trump said it. Boom, boom, boom. It is like a clear cause and effect relationship. So he's got to see the numbers like, all right, all right, all right. So how can I just keep these people alive for another few months so they can just vote for me one more time. And then after that, he doesn't care. He is that selfish. I think that is the only motivating factor for this man is to just try to get him some more votes. I also want to point out, I don't want to overstate that he's more serious about it because he also called it the China virus. And he, again, you know, that that 
clip in the beginning where he uh, where he said the United States had the lowest mortality rate in the world or whatever. He said that in the task force briefing too. So it's not. I don't want to overstate the the claim that he's becoming more serious. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean it's, he, he's, he's becoming. becoming more serious in the sense that he's literally advising people to get into the lifeboats after the Titanic has already hit the iceberg. I mean, if that, if you can call that serious. I think it's a good time to go in the boats now. I think this is the time. Music, keep playing. Um, Meanwhile, Cena, that story about the trucker, the anti-masker, I did not know that. And that is Yeah, Yeah, there's a few of those that are floating around of, you know, now granted, it's possible though those are anecdotal and and you know I, I found that it was very yeah. interesting to me and maybe I'm creating a connection where there is none but right around the time you know a, a few months ago that it became clear that the coronavirus was targeting people of color uh, specifically or that it was having a, uh, a disproportionate impact, effect yeah. on on black and Latino communities was right around the time that white people said, you know what, maybe we should reopen the economy, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, so it's like I yep. agree that his he's jeopardizing his own voters, but I feel like the reason we've got to that point is because, at least in the early days when New York was the epicenter, a lot of the stories were about, hey, it's, it's black people, it's Latino people, it's poor people, don't worry about it, you know. And I think that a lot of people around America were like, oh, well, then what – what am I not getting my nails done for if it's just black people dying? Like, I think there was this sort of attitude yeah. out there. And, uh, you know, and now that it's finally moved into other parts of the country, I don't mean to talk about that like it's a positive thing. I think he can kind of clearly see, oh, this might actually be a negative for me electorally. Well, yeah, know, I mean, and also the the even stronger correlation to what you're saying, Christian, is that it hit Florida and Texas, right? And mm-hmm. he really needs those states to win. And then also we're now talking about Texas like it's in play, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, you know, in Florida is obviously swing states always in play. So, um, you know, the, the gross other horrible thing is if once coronavirus hits a state that you need um, – you need to keep those voters alive and and they need to see leadership from you. It's the way that the, you know, in, in Massachusetts, there's a Republican governor, right? And he has a really high approval rating for the work that he's been doing. It's like a ridiculous percent that's it's bipartisan um, because people just need to see leadership. They don't need to see they don't need to necessarily care about who, what the party of that person is. Um, and so we've seen that. We've seen that in Ohio, right? Um, and so I think that's part of uh, the, you know, the, oh, shit, now I should show leadership because apparently leadership is bipartisan. Yeah. It's amazing to realize that, like, we, like, our measure of leadership now is just can you deliver bad news, like, in a digestible way? That's it. That's all we need. Can you just give yeah. us some bad news straight and up? Digestible and also true. Just yeah. true just yeah, facts. Yeah. Cuomo, I mean, I cannot tell you. Like, everyone in New York is like, has always been very on the fence or hated Cuomo, all this stuff. I've never yeah. thought he was like a big Democrat or anything like that. I always mm-hmm. knew he was just like a Republican that like liked to hang out and like to like help gay people get married. Great. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Mr. Cuomo. But then when, like, coronavirus hits, people are like, look at this stately leader. He shall lead <laughs> right. us into glory. Just because he's like, everything is fucked. 
Everyone is fucked. It's bad. We got nothing. We're so unprepared. That's all. He just said how terrible everything was. Every single you're day, right, we're like, right. he's right. That's right. I like it. I like this yeah, guy. Let's throw on a mask. Straight. Let's throw on a fucking mask. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about the census really quick. Trump is trying to block undocumented immigrants from being counted. <laughs> Guys, why on earth would he do that? It's so strange. Um, it's obviously unconstitutional. So as a political strategy... And, 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 it's be, and he's being sued left and right, you know, right? So, like, that, it's like, it's obviously unconstitutional. <laughs> Article 1 actually gives the power to Congress, right, not the president. Um, so it, that's ridiculous. The 14th Amendment, which ended the counting of enslaved persons as three-fifths, um, goes further to require the counting of the whole number of persons in each state, right? So, again, it's, like, unconstitutional in so many ways. Um, why is he doing this? I mean, it's uh, obviously this is like to rally his base. But what I find is that he always finds a way to live within his own hypocrisy very well. So if you think about it, he's going to try to reduce the number of people to get counted. So that changes Congress, that changes funding, that changes all these different things that has a cascading effect. But what he doesn't know definitely is that in the unemployment numbers, or rather the employment numbers, undocumented immigrants get counted in those numbers. Those are just surveys. <laughs> so when he's going to spike the football about the unemployment rate is at the lowest, it's ever, you're counting illegal immigrants in that number, jackass. You have you can't just spike the football in one place and be like, no, I don't want to count them in another place. He's cherry picking. And it's like this is the kind of stuff that we need to tell people what he's doing so that the fraud that he is plug that is just very clear. <laughs> and the scam that he's been trying to pull on us is so transparent. Uh. Christian, I mean, I, I, I agree. No, I uh, guess my question is, as a, as a, <laughs> right, as a political strategy, as an electoral strategy, I think what's interesting about this is that um, the new, I, it, I don't even know. I think the coronavirus is so big that it swallows anything about um, this kind of effort. I think again, he's yeah. trying to do the 2016 playbook. Or he's like, don't worry, guys, I'm not including uh, Mexicans in this, undocumented Mexicans in this um, thing, you know, and MS-13 and uh, undocumented and stealing our jobs, right? It's like playbook, playbook, playbook. But I think in 2020, nobody gives a fuck about that playbook. Like that playbook, it's like it's like having, you know, a huge policy stance on horse-drawn carriages. You know what I mean? Right. It just feels ex extremely out of touch. Christian, well, what do you think of it as an electoral strategy? Well, it's possible that that the general public may not even be may not even be the the real audience for this. Um, if you're trying to shore up support within not just the Senate, but also the House and, and, and Republican parties across America, you know, if you're talking about reapportioning, you know, uh, House seats, that is the kind of thing where if you if you've been really frustrated with Trump about how he's handled the coronavirus that's the kind I of love thing. really, really frustrated is like the kind of is like the nicest way of putting it. <laughs> well, Christian. but but I'm saying I'm saying Republicans. If you're if you're oh, like a yeah, if yeah, you're yeah. like a uh -huh. Republican House member from Minnesota or or, or 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 you know I don't pick a state and you right. you're on you're you're you know you're still pro Trump but you're having a hard time making that argument when people ask you and you're and you're having a hard time feeling passionate about it. Well, if you're talking about 
you know, getting rid of uh, House seats from the inner city, you know, that that go to Democrats automatically, well, then that could get me back on board. Like that could get me back on the Trump train. Like, you know, that that if, if you're throwing red meat to Republicans across the country, I, I just wonder if this is kind of a play more to shore up enthusiasm and passion uh, from Republicans writ large more than it is mm. specifically about mm. getting votes. And also and also, just, again, uh, I think that Trump believes, and I think there may even be a, a bit of uh, evidence to support this, that his supporters feel excited to be on offense. They don't want to be on defense. They want to be on offense. And the thing they like to be on offense about the most is kicking the shit out of immigrants. You know, and right, so right, right, anything right. you can do to indicate, hey, hey, Joe Q voter out there, I am kicking the shit out of immigrants, that that will at least make people who might be upset with you in other ways be like, well, on the upside, he is being terrible to brown people. So, you know, I'm for right, that. Right, right. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I can see that as, like, as a rationale. But I, I um, it's funny because I think. There's a wonderfully conservative way of like spinning masks and as like uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, put on your mask and protect yourself. You know what I mean? Like masking yourself is like arming yourself. I feel like there's a way of bringing in. I, I just again, I think this is not. It's like I still think Republicans want to see leadership on coronavirus. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like leadership on like and look, I I don't mean to downplay how racist we are as a country <laughs> because I'm sure you're right. A lot of people will be really excited by the inherent bigotry of of uh, plans like even this. just the, <laughs> but, the lizard brain part of people it might not even be a conscious. Yeah, thought. right, just... right, 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 right. No, exactly. Um, but but again, I'm just like. Conservatives, you're missing a huge opportunity to be have a wonderfully conservative selling point on masks and do your you know do your part or whatever like like a soldier you know what I mean um, it's patriotic like they love that stuff uh, why isn't that in I don't know anyways I just don't understand why that's not a part of the you know well the, I mean the, you're the asking electoral discourse you know people can say to me Christian you know what I would really love from you six pack abs. Uh, I can't give them that. So I have to try to give you something else. You, you know what I mean? So it's like they can right. want leadership on the coronavirus from Trump till the cows come home. Right. He's incapable of providing that. So all he can do is right. provide him what he's more comfortable with. Yeah, no, that's that's an that's an excellent point. All right, you guys, you know what we'll do. Um, by the way, I didn't mention this to the people, the 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 fake the nation nation. There is construction sounds, uh, because they're doing something to like the third floor of my building that involves a jackhammer. Uh, so it's really and if you're hearing that, I apologize. There's nothing I could do because also I have to record from home. <laughs> so anyways, apologies for the sound quality. Um, if you're hearing that today, uh, let's, instead of hearing more jackhammer, let's hear from our sponsors uh, who keep the lights on here at fake the nation. We appreciate them very much. Lee. And when we come back, we will check in with black lives matter. Today's show is sponsored by Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app 
that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It monitors your spending. It helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. I have used rocket money. And you guys, honestly, I had no idea how many things I was subscribing to that I didn't want to be subscribing to. I think we all go into, we enter into subscriptions with a Pollyanna view that we're going to use as a subscription, even though it's a super obscure, you know, educational app from Albania that uh, teaches Russian math or whatever. And then you're like, I'm never going to use this. Why did I get it? I should remember to cancel it. And then you don't. And I know you guys are like me and I know you've done this to yourselves. And guess what? 75% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about. So we're all in this bucket. And I think paying for that stuff is so angering and Rocket Money is there to help. Because basically Rocket Money shows you, hey, look at this is what all the things you are subscribed to. But then here's the bigger thing. To unsubscribe, you don't have to go through the whole rigmarole. Rocket Money unsubscribes for you with a click of a button. It's so easy. The other thing Rocket Money did for me, which I was incredibly grateful for, was reduce the cost of one of my bills. It was my cable bill. Yes, I still have cable. Rocket Money has over 5 million users that have saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I mean, that tracks for me and for the number of things I was paying for that I'm frankly ashamed of. So thank you, Rocket Money, for like fixing the shame glaze on my life. Uh, so stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash fake the nation. Again, that's rocketmoney.com slash fake the nation. Rocketmoney.com slash fake the nation, you guys. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back and we're ready for topic number two. So let's check in with Black Lives Matter, uh, especially how it's playing out in Portland. So there's been protests every day there since the beginning, and now the federal government has deployed troops. Um, Cena, troops in Portland. How's that playing out? Well, you know, I think there's, well, one, it's poorly for the people of Portland. I think it's obvious it's not going so well for them. I saw some terrible <laughs> like videos that look like it was like produced by like Steven Soderbergh or something like that. Uh, and it was just like low lights, smoke everywhere. They're like shadowy troops walking through these crowds and stuff like that. Uh, but the unfortunate part is because Portland is honestly so far away from any major media market, I don't think it's getting frankly 
enough of the attention and the traction that it should be. If this was happening in downtown New York City, it'd mm. be global news. But it's happening in Portland, and I don't think it's getting, frankly, much. Maybe in like these like cable news circles, it's siphoning around a little bit. But I just don't really see the traction that it's happening. I think there needs to be a little bit more elevation of this because they haven't stopped protesting for for weeks now, and and it's right. been something I, to I, really I, marvel I, at. I agree that in the last several weeks, it has not gotten any attention, uh, and it and that it was almost a surprise um, to most people, um, including myself, to know that it had gone on every single day. Um, I think there has been an uptick of coverage, especially with the Wall of Moms. So the Wall of Moms showed basically showed up to um, stand, you know, arms linked between federal agents and demonstrators. So they were there to, like, stop the violence, and they were saying stuff like, don't hit your mother or whatever. Um, and I I was like, oh, shit, the moms are out. And it, it made me feel a lot better because I was like, the moms will sort this out, guys. Uh, <laughs> let's everybody calm down. We, we've we got moms here. It's going to be great. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the Donnie called the um, – I, I think part of what's happening is just – is like what is the marketing message out of Portland? Um, and so for Donnie and, you know, um, the right wing, the message is it's, quote, worse than Afghanistan, right? That what we're seeing in Portland is worse than Afghanistan. And I think it's true that there's been some episodes of violence in Portland, but by and large, it's just been peaceful protests every day. Um, I think part of what's really remarkable is, is just the length of, you know, of like that it's been going on for so long. Uh, Christian, what do you think, like, what are we here? What is what are voters hearing about Portland? Like, how does this affect them? You know, it's really hard to know how this is going to play out. You know, and again, you don't want to strip everything down to voters and electoral systems and things like that. I mean, these are human beings, but I think that again, Trump has a limited toolbox, and he he remembers the Chicago riots at the convention in 68 and, he, and that, that that helped Nixon get reelected. And he thinks Does that he? if people see chaos on TV, they will want a law and order president. The difference is, of course, is that Nixon wasn't president at the time. <laughs> he was running to replace LBJ. Uh, you know, um, and also it wasn't, it may have been obvious to people who are savvy enough at the time, but it's pretty clear right now that Trump is the instigator of most of this violence. I think most people understand that these protests, while annoying and potentially uh, maybe they don't agree with spray painting on federal buildings or pulling down statues or whatever, but I don't think anybody out there thought, oh, my God, the Portland protest is going to come for me. <laughs> you know, I don't think anyone was quaking in their boots. But Trump is trying to ramp this up. And you can see, you know, Ken Cuccinelli, the deputy secretary of uh, Homeland Security, and keeps putting out these, uh, like, tweets where we recovered this from protesters. And, uh, you know, the violence continues. And it was like uh, a garbage can lid used as a shield and, a, and two gas masks. As if that was a sign. It's like, well, to me, those are defensive things. You know, those, those are those are things you get when you are being attacked, not when you're attacking people. And it's like, it's like he's they're trying to start a Reichstag fire, but they have wet matches. Like they don't 
they can't they can't get the <laughs> the rage started because they're incompetent right. morons. Um, by the way, I want to point out like a, a bit of the um, the conservative response to what we're seeing. Ben D- Ben Dominich Dominich. Uh, I never know how to pronounce that guy's name. Anyway, he said uh, that that saying you know that the federal that the troops are increasing the violence. He said, "quote That's as ludicrous as saying that because there are a lot of firemen showing up at burning houses, that it was them that started the fire in the first place." Um, I gotta be honest. As far as analogies go, uh, I can I can picture myself being you know. Uh, some someone's mom and watching Fox News and being like, "That's an excellent point." Well, is there is is there? I guess the question that I would have about Portland still is how much has the violence actually escalated? Because from what I've been reading, it seems like the violence has been pretty high. It's like the local police <laughs> were doing their fair share of beating people up before the federal troops and stuff even started we're coming beating in. beating people up. We right, have right, right. A, a very militarized police system. So at least like a, there's a portion of that where I'm like, I, I don't understand what kind of analogy that even in what planet that's from really. But what I do know is that there are all of these police that you may have one or two like uh, lieutenants that are just like, all right, guys, we're going to uh, keep it calm, keep the peace. And then there's like 800 guys that are like, we are going to beat some people up today. And they're excited about it. And you could see it very clearly in a lot of these videos. I don't know if you guys are on TikTok, but it's a great place to be right now. <laughs> I am seeing- oh, my God. So, you know, you're such a TikTok evangelist. Every time you come on their show, it's I'm TikTok saying, this and TikTok that. You know what? By the way, I brought it up so long ago. Now they're talking about close a TikTok down. So I'm like ahead of the game. I'm just saying. You guys just jump on board. I know where it's um, at. It's but a there's site a for espionage, Cena. <laughs> Whatever. You see me, I see you. What's the deal? By the way, I don't know what I'm talking about. I just saw that as a headline. So, like, do not go fucking read that yourself. I have no idea what that means. Continue, Cena. Sorry. But you know, if you if you really look at it, it it's a it's a whole systemic problem that we're facing and it's like portland is just this i think great standard bearer that they're carrying the torch still for a lot of other places that have had protests mm. kind of died down and frankly that's what yeah, i'm happy yeah, about yeah. you can see in brooklyn here like a lot of the protests have died down there's just like cute bike r- runs that are happening yeah. now in my neighborhood there's no more uh-huh. like down flatbush avenue stopping traffic and stuff like that so I- i'm happy it's still going but the violence has always although been- i don't want to look the cute bike runs i don't want to diminish those because they are keeping it you know i remember i i came across a cute bike run um <laughs> a few days ago and in manhattan and i was like thank you like because yeah. they're 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 driving by thousands of people in their run and they're reminding everybody that black lives matter. Right. And so like, it doesn't matter how small your protest is. Your protest is really fucking Amen. important. You, you know, know? Um, also, I, I just want to say like mm-hmm. what I want to say to people when they're watching, you know, when Nagin, when you were saying if you were at home and you, you know, the fire department analogy and you, you know, think, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. What I would want, what I'd want to say to these people is, okay, this is clearly what you're seeing on TV. These images that, that are, ter- they're frightening. You'd like them to go away. Right. You'd like them to go away. And ostensibly their answer would be yes. And I'd be like, tell me how that happens with Trump as president. Like, explain to mm-hmm. me the process by which this goes away. 
right, without millions of people being hung in the town <laughs> yeah. town square. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like because yeah. I can tell you very clearly. I might not even agree with it, but I can tell you very clearly how it ends with Joe Biden being president. It's a very easy sell. It's Joe Biden becomes the sort of national healer, and he kind of gives a little to the left, gives a little to the right. Nobody's happy about it, but we all kind of grumble, 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 and we go to sleep, and we are able to get a good night's sleep for the first time in four years. That, like, that's a very easy sell, whereas there is no sell for this ending under a second Trump term without utter blood in the streets. There's no way. There's no there's no uh there's no path to a peaceful future with Trump as president right. without serious carnage. Sadly. Um let's you know let's let's and thank you for pointing that out uh Christian and I want to like zoom out a little bit because a majority of Americans still support Black Lives Matter, right? At a record uh 69%. Um however, uh, the public generally, this is from a, a poll I read in the Washington Post, the public generally opposes calls to shift some police funding to social services or remove statues of Confederate generals or presidents who enslaved people. This is a mixed message we're getting from the same poll. Uh, I mean, this defund the police, and it's funny because one of the funnier moments of that Chris Wallace interview was that Trump says that Biden supports defunding the police, and Chris Wallace is like, no, he doesn't. <laughs> and Trump's like, no, he like signed a manifesto with Bernie or something, which is what manifesto? What are you talking about? <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, it was one of those fun um, moments from that from the uh, Headspace meditation app uh, that te- that Cena now uses to fall asleep. Um, but uh, the, the tactic, I mean, so my concern was when we first talked about this weeks ago, the defund the police did not contain in it the multitudes that it actually does contain, just the, as, a, as a branding, you know, exercise. Um, and I think that that's kind of what we're seeing, that defund the police isn't a clear indication. People are like, do I call 911? You know what I mean? Like, do I still get to do that? Like, do, do you believe that crime exists? Obviously, progressives believe that fucking crime exists. And I write about this in my next piece for the Progressive Magazine. Plug! <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that, you know, that the problem is now that we've said this thing, defund the police, and that now, instead of explaining specifically what that means, and obviously it's complicated and we're still working out what that means, and Minneapolis is like specifically working out what that means, which is fantastic. But now we have sort of let the right be like, they mean that there's like that they want cr- criminals to run around. Um, so we're sort of letting them define the terms of the debate, um, you know, after we said defund the police. I mean, I, I can see it uh, from, from either way, though, because you could also say it's it's a resetting of the goalposts that, you know, people who are saying defund the police. Well, if I say defund the police and that ends up being watered down to mean we change the function of police departments and maybe we shift some funding around, well, that's a more successful outcome than if I said, hey, maybe we should reassign some police functions and move a little bit of money around. That gets watered down to nothing. You, you know what I mean? I, I, so yeah. I, I agree that that to fund the police became a very kind of catch-all phrase that everybody just kind of started using one week without really thinking it through because it could without mean different things to different people. It was sort of a, you know, a... Uh, 
a straw man, like a positive straw man in a way. It was like a big tent sort of thing that people could say. And nobody really wanted to define exactly what that meant. And by the time we did, we being liberals writ large, by the time we did define what it meant, it was kind of too late. Right. Uh, Cena, I wanted to ask you um... – because lest listeners forget, you have a law degree. Oh, uh, what? Lest you yourself forget. Um, a good we read Persian a piece. boy. <laughs> <laughs> he got it's we both did the same fucking thing, me and Cena. We got a bunch of degrees and then we went into comedy and entertainment like a bunch of fucking idiots. Okay. Uh we're fantastic. Um so we read a piece in the Times by former prosecutor Paul Butler, and he said, Blame the prosecutors, not the grand jurors. There's one reason that Daniel Pantaleo is not being charged in the death of Eric Garner. It's because district attorney Dan Donovan of Staten Island did not want him to be. So so his his basic point is prosecutors are the main problem. He this guy like went in um, to be a prosecutor thinking that he could change the system from within, but it found out that the system had instead changed him. Right, um, Cena, does that ring true to you as someone who has a legal background? I, I've taught. I have some friends that are prosecutors and stuff, and. And every prosecutor has their own discretion. But remember, they always have to, you know, talk to the district attorney, right? Like the 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 head, the elected official of right. that area. So there's the Manhattan DA or whatever DA is is kind of in charge for that jurisdiction. So there is a public kind of check on stuff like that. And so it is almost on us to really think more about those local district attorneys that we end up electing. You know, the the judges or the district attorneys that you always see in those like midterm elections if you vote in midterms, which everyone should be doing, by the way. And you're like, ah, oh, there's like 22 names on here. What am I going to do? I can't Google this many people. I've got five minutes. Got to get back on the subway. I've got to get to my next meeting. So it's all these things. But those are that's the trickle down effect yeah. of not taking more care into that. But I also think that is like. Um, trying to put the blame in a very binary way, right? If you look back, if you look at really what the defund the police conversation is about, the one not def defined by the right, but the defined by more progressive movements, it's let's actually dismantle and reimagine what public safety is. That's really at the core of what we're talking about. Because for so long, you know, there's a police station in my neighborhood that was built in 18, like 45 or something like that, something crazy. And I was like, was it the Civil War in 1865? And I was like, <laughs> <"What's> <laughs> isn't this the exact problem that we're trying to avoid? Are they here? using it's the same cubicles <laughs> pre like, it's like the, same the end of slavery? Yeah. It's like, let's just, I get a new iOS update on my phone every two fucking weeks. <laughs> we haven't updated the police department in 200 years. It's like, can we please just think a little bit logically about, is this the same way we want to keep each other safe? Right. And if so, then that actually transitions, translates into the prosecutors. It translates into the judges, translates into a community policing, restorative justice, all these things that also get factored into public safety and kind of the more welfare uh, type of things where we're like trying to get more mental health for communities, trying to actually create a better system where people aren't uh, need to steal or, or feel like they're so oppressed right now that that this is how the reaction occurs. Th those are the things. It's not a binary situation. Right. I mean, there's a few things that I've gotten excited about, though, just if we wanted to get like real specific. There's a few things that I've gotten excited about since specifically since George Floyd, but even before that, back to Eric Garner, that I, that I think 
we that would make a huge difference. Um, so I'll advocate them now. That one is I do think that prosecutors their way forward is based on the number of of cases they win. Right, that's how they advance in their careers is by winning cases. And winning cases does not mean figuring out the truth of what happened in a particular situation that involved or may not have involved a criminal act, right? So that those things are at odds. Like what the justice is supposed to system is supposed to determine is justice, right? Like it's supposed to serve justice. It's not supposed to serve wins and losses and then someone gets to advance in their career because they like got a bunch of wins. Yeah, it's not like, that's it's not, not like a legal hot dog eating contest where it's like <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That is how our justice system is currently based. It's based on the July 4th hot dog eating contest. And and that's Joey not Chestnut that... for the people. Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> <laughs> Um, And that it doesn't make any sense, right? Because that doesn't, it's like whether or not you won or lost makes no difference into whether or not this crime happened and this person was the criminal or not, you know? So that I think is, uh, we need to move away from this winning or losing um, structure into a, we are all here. And, and we're not even called prosecutors or defenders anymore. We're all literally just here to figure out the truth of the situation. Um, I mean, well, you and- know, and also just uh, that Paul Butler piece that you're referring to was, was written yeah. in 2015, which, of course, is still completely applicable now. But, I mean, even just <laughs> – Totally. I was – I am not one of those people who who thinks Law & Order was a good show. I had a, a lot of smart people I know are obsessed with that oh show. God, I've I, always thought I it was garbage. I never watched that show. Yeah, never, ever watch it. But still, though, if you just think about how that show operates, you know, there are, what, what, is, what does the intro say? Like, there are two things, the, you know, the, things. the courts and the boom, police. Boom. You know, yeah. that they have to work in Congress with each other. And so it's not only just that they have to win these cases. They have to win these cases with the help of the police department. And so, right. you know, you, you can't go hard at these guys – who theoretically you're going to need their help to win your other cases. And so I right. you know I think I agree that it does it's not a binary thing that if you fix prosecutors then you don't have to deal with the police departments they're two separate problems that both deserve attention. But I do see his point though that you know you can't have you can't have these cases being adjudicated by prosecutors who have a vested interest in not pissing off the police department. <laughs> you, you know, I mean that seems like a no-brainer to me. There's a right. great there's a great documentary called uh, The Edge of Democracy about Brazil and kind of the rise of Bolsonaro. And one of the things is they had in Brazil were all these different uh, investigations that happened and they were trying to root out corruption. And one of the things, speaking of prosecutors, was the lead prosecutor that was in charge of the big uh, you know, investigation to oust the former president arrested the former president. And then like it was a 90s sitcom turned around and said, I am now also the judge of this case. And so he's like, put on his judge hat <laughs> and then adjudicated the thing. I think it would go so a little something like this. <laughs> <laughs> so we, in America, it's like, he yeah, it's on a mustache. Point, yeah, we got to separate and have more maybe autonomy with the prosecutors. So they're not right. almost as influenced as the police. And we this whole commingling thing. Great. If you have a shared Slack channel. 
But come on, you guys have to like <laughs> get it together and be more. No, exactly. Thinking. It's a pro. So, so uh, yeah. So I would really love to see a change in in that in 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 that. And again, I think that's attainable. Like I think what we're talking about is eminently attainable. Um, and the other two things that I've been really excited about is I feel like we need to have more investigators and like maybe fewer people in the field because. Uh, and just as a personal anecdote, we're we in the neighborhood. There's like a little bit of a drug drug dealing situation that I find uh, a little menacing. And so we've reached out to the police department and we're like, hey, drug dealers, what's the deal, you know? And um, and they were like, right, we're going to get, um, you know, a detective to get back to you. And we're like, cool, when is that going to happen? And they're, you know, we're thinking between, he's going to say something like between 24 and 48 hours or whatever, right? He's like, oh, I don't know. No. And I'm like, what do you mean? I don't know. Like, tomorrow, a week from tomorrow. And he was just like, yeah, we'll see. And then it's been two weeks and I have not heard. Well, I mean, from this is all part right? of the plan and, too. And the problem is, is detectives are historically underfunded. And then the field officers are, the, the presence of field officers are overfunded. And so this becomes a mismatch mm. of needs, right? That's one one thing I would love to see change. And then the like second that. thing I would love to see, another, this is the third thing I would love to see change is I w- I think people want police presence. They don't want police brutality, right? So I think, like, when you think about the women's marches, there were tons of police at the women's marches, but they were mostly chilling, right? They were just sort of on the side. And I think part of it is that it was a lot of women, da da da, da you're not, uh, not going to hit they women. They weren't There's protesting like a whole the different- police. <laughs> You know, we're not right, 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 right. There's a whole right. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons, but I, but I remember thinking as I was doing the women's marches that like, oh, I think this police is this is the kind of thing we want. We want presence so that we get a sense of like this is not going to devolve into chaos or whatever. But we don't want them. What people don't want from the police is stopping and frisking and racial profiling and all of the other shit, right? Um, but but I do think there's like. It for I mean, obviously, for some people, it, and again, I think the problem is police presence has turned into police menace for communities of color. That's the thing, you know, for white people, police presence doesn't necessarily mean menace, right? So we need to also work on, like, having those two things, you know, merge so that everyone views police presence as whether we're here to prevent chaos and not physically do anything to you. I mean, the, the problem um, is that every time... Does that make sense? I'm yeah. not trying to d- diminish anyone's, you know, fear of the police, which is super fucking real. Well, there are so many small, you know, things, small by comparison things that we could do that most people agree with. You know, that most police officers should live in the cities where they're, where they are uh, working. You know, um, there shouldn't be, you know, there should be uh, not, uh, mental health checks shouldn't be performed by armed officers, you know, things like that. But the problem is that anything that is suggested that kind of nibbles around the edges of police reform, the police unions and the, you know, people on the right will paint that as complete anarchy. They, they want to defund the police. They want to get rid of, they want to abolish policing. And so I can understand from a left perspective, it's like, okay, anything we suggest, you're going to call abolishing the police. So fuck it. Let's just abolish the police. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's right, just, right, right, right. you're going to call it that anyway. And there is this kind of snapback too, from like the eight can't wait policies that came out that Obama and a bunch of celebrities supported and stuff. And that came around a very similar time of like the, the fund the police. And like that kind of 
I guess a little bit of you could call it incrementalism, if you will, that actually puts probably more funding in police was kind of like allergic to a lot of progressives. And they're like, you know what? Fuck this. Defund the police. We don't need to right, give right, them more right, right. money so they can get beefed up to know how to do an arm bar instead of a chokehold. No, we need to like actually rethink this. It just really gets back to like the why. Why are we do? Why do we have them? What is their purpose? What is their goal? And like presence yeah. and the feeling of safety is what is really most important, not the running people right. down and, and you know, right. all the other stuff. Um, that, yeah, I like that. It's the presence and feeling of safety that we want to achieve. We don't want to, the menace and the brutality. Yeah. <laughs> so like, and I think it all goes back to the fucking precinct in your neighborhood was built in 1845. <laughs> uh, we need to like just take a sec to like rethink it. All right, you guys, uh, we are going to move on to topic number three. So a couple weeks ago, Harper's published a letter on justice and open debate that was signed by a ton of fancy uh, public figures um, like Malcolm Gladwell and David Brooks and I don't know who else. Um, and it makes a case that we have weakened our, quote, norms of open debate and toleration of differences in favor of ideological conformity. Um, but they, but they basically make the case that, uh, and again, I'm quoting here, institutional leaders in a spirit of panicked damage control are delivering hasty and disproportionate punishments instead of considered reforms. Um, and they list all of the ways in which People are, you know, editors are being fired. Books are withdrawn from, uh, books are withdrawn because of inauthenticity. Journalists are barred from writing on certain topics, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. Uh, so they made this case, um, I guess, and then and then there was a response for it to to that piece in Harper's. But first, what were your initial reactions um, to that piece in Harper's, Christian? Uh, well, I don't know. I just can't imagine looking around. 2020 and thinking this is what's important to talk about right now. You know, I mean, for, like <laughs> this needs to be said. It, it's a, how, I mean, I the word privilege is like almost a nonsense word at this point. It's thrown around so much. But how just completely absent you are from the struggles that people are facing, that this is what you're going to be focusing on right now. And I think there is sort of a knee jerk. Listen, we all understand that there is what it's like to get a bunch of people online mad at you. We all understand that sort of gut feeling, like when you say something online and people start coming at you and you open up Twitter and it's just like people, you know, women more than than men, obviously. But everybody understands that that is an unlikable, gross feeling. And that it, I guess if you're going to list if you're going to make a list of problems, that would be on there somewhere, <laughs> you know, mm. but it's probably in the low 70s of, of things that are really affecting the day-to-day -day person. Of course, it affects the people who sign that letter because they're uh, journalists or, you know, they're, they're writers and they're not used to having that kind of immediate feedback from everyone, even you know, even 10 years ago, it's like, okay, I wrote some article for the New Republic that, that people had a problem with the Atlantic or what, you know, I, I'm I'm catching maybe on the message boards, but if I don't go to the message boards, I don't even have to see that stuff. Or maybe there's a few letters to the editor that are printed that are scathing, but not when I go to just check my daily social media, which is, you know, where I go to see funny videos of dogs and all these things. And now I have 50 people calling me an asshole or a racist or a sexist. I, I understand that that might feel problematic to you, but get a fucking grip. Get a fucking grip. The I, house is on fire. I disagree with 
you. I mean, I I agree that the house is on fire with more. It's funny because I think on one show I said something like, I don't even remember. Oh, it was about the ERA. And I was like, I guess if I had to choose between the ERA and the climate crisis, I would choose the climate crisis. But we don't have to choose. Like, this is allowed to also be an issue. And I think the reason why it is an issue is because... It is the interface is with every single man, woman and child, right, who has access to the Internet, because we all feel the we all feel the rage. We all know that at any moment we could be canceled at any in any age group for having said anything, even people with very, very small followings to large followings. So I think the entire concept of the um, public forum has been, you know, magnified so intensely that everyone is now in it and could be complete, could be canceled, which is why I think it's not, you know, a silly thing for us to to think about or talk about because it it, it does feel constant. It and it also feels like we're all in it. Um, Sina, what were your initial reactions? Yeah, initially, I kind of uh, was with Christian. It's like, we have better things to talk about now. And uh, But uh, thinking about it more and kind of looking at some of the other people that signed on, Kareem Sarjapur is this Iranian advocate, uh, ad- activist that, that's on here as well, who uh, I know and love. Wynton Marsalis is literally a musician. So he's like, you know, <laughs> Noam Chomsky. I mean, it's not, this is not even like a right or left type thing, right? right this is, right. I think there is a huge amount of privilege that's involved here. But what I kind of always go back to are like two big things. One, we, you know, I don't know how you guys grew up, but where I grew up, everyone was always like, you shouldn't talk about religion or politics. And those are the two things that we have more fights about in this country than every anything else that we could possibly imagine. We have run away from having uncomfortable conversations, and we have socialized this entire country to not have the literacy in having those uncomfortable conversations. I want to have con- uncomfortable conversations all the time to the point where when my wife and I, when we used to go to dinner parties, would be like, can we please not? Can we just please not tonight? And it's like <laughs> those are the things that I look forward to doing. And the other thing is a lot of the cancel culture leads to us not getting like the solutions that are actually for our most long term benefit for the things that we're trying to do. For example, like there's a city in Florida that was called Plantation, Florida, that I think is changing the name from Plantation. to Fantastic. That is great. I'm all for that. You know, no problems here. But you know what would be a lot better? is if we didn't code race into our zip codes so that if you're a black person you go get a mortgage, you're going to get a subprime mortgage because they know your zip code, they know what race you are, and they're going to give you a terrible mortgage. That leads to terrible lending. That leads to you not having equity in the very neighborhood that you're trying to invest in. These are like tough concepts sometimes to kind of wrap our brain around, but I don't want us to have a party because we changed, we took down a statue or changed the name of a city when we have huge equity issues in this country where like you have like zero people of color on boards across the country and yet we're going to take down these statues. We are not done yet. So mm-hmm. whether or not this kind of this letter addresses that, I, I think it kind of is, kind of doesn't in a way. And I think there is a little bit of like, I want to write whatever I want and you have to like it. There is like a lot of that that I feel from like, especially David Brooks, like David Brooks signing on to this is very frustrating for me. I wish they did not invite him to sign it. But the, a lot of the other people, I feel like there's a huge amount 
of room for us as a society, especially in this country, to be able to grow and have these tough conversations and make fun of each other like comedians do. This is why we all like hanging out with each other is because we all like being able to say whatever we want and be able to send and receive all kinds of different pieces of of words and not necessarily and know that we're all in this together to try to make like things better. Right. And be funnier. Frankly. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Artists, comedians um, might feel some sort of pressure is feels like, you know, in a way, Christian, you're right. It feels like who gives a shit if you feel a little pressure about, you know, censoring yourself a little bit like fucking who cares? Like, that's fine. Um, but I do. uh I do feel it so much more now. Do you? Well, of course, we all feel it. Do you feel an aversion? Right. So you feel an aversion, and has it changed anything that you've you would fundamentally say or do? uh, To me, it is purely a function of technology and how society engages with technology. It's not some political revolution that's happened or some de devolving of public discourse all on its own. It is 100% a function of people having a a way to communicate, often anonymously, at every moment of every day, the minute a thought comes through their heads. You know, and a lot of times, I, I may be mistaken about this, but I'm of the belief that a lot of these people that are coming at you, trying to cancel you, it's not really about you. It's all about them branding themselves. It's all about everyone. Look at me taking down so and so. You know, in in once you. S- but the but the real life consequences are that so and so gets taken down. But who's gotten you taken down? I mean? Who really has gotten taken down? It, that hasn't deserved um, it. Do you know what I mean? Like, who I'll are the people you, that have gotten taken uh, down? Okay, okay. I I think Al Franken got taken down, and I don't know that he deserved it. Okay. I mean, again, though, that wasn't yeah, – I mean, I don't know if if and, that's and, the kind and, of thing – is that the kind of thing this letter is trying to address? It doesn't sound like I, it to it, me. Right. It's, to it's me, it like you're right. You're right that the letter – it's funny because I think part, there's like two things going on. The letter is trying to address like whether or not – you know, writers and j- journalists and whoever feel like sort of comfortable speaking their mind. But I think the thing that it doesn't talk about is it's really not about them feeling comfortable. It's about the social media apparatus that whips people up into a frenzy and then forces the institutional, the people in charge um, to like fire those writers or, you know, um, and then and then it leads to people self um, censoring, but but I mean this uh, this this instinct like has always version. existed. It's just that, that we have a facility with it now. I mean, you know, ask the Dix- Dixie Chicks about that. You know, uh, you know. Uh, right, right, I mean, ask. Right. Obviously, it's it's stained Bill Maher's stole, soul for the last twenty years. You know, his show getting canceled, and now that's he thinks that's the most important thing in the world because it happened to him. But this stuff has always happened. The only difference is that now we have technology to bitch about it constantly. And also, I think when 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 you, when we use things like you know whirl people up into a frenzy, I actually don't think that people are as frenzied as it looks in print. They say "fuck you, you should die" in a tweet, but meanwhile, 
they're playing with their dog while they do it. You know, they're they're walking down the street <laughs> on the way to grab lunch yeah. at Potbelly Sandwich Works. You know, you know what I mean? Like that this frenzy when things are put into print, we have this idea that it takes on this this seriousness and this fury. But I really don't think that that's true. I think a lot of people are just going about their lives like, oh hey, what do you want at lunch? Oh wait, hold on, let me send this tweet. Fuck you, die. Anyway, so where should we get lunch? <laughs> you know. I, <laughs> That's my favorite way to tweet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think though that the right that the that the fuck you die goes back to (laughs) Cena's point about literacy around we are not so for whatever reason we've lost the ability to have nuanced conversations you know um and that i think is the problem with fuck you die not it's not it's like it's not specifically that the, that tweet it's the um it's that the tweet is trying to to suppress nuanced conversations well, as a society always. i think we've all become way too addicted to dunking like that that, yeah. that has become the be all end all that it's not really about having a conversation anymore it's like who can deliver that oh shit moment <laughs> like, oh yeah 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 totally um i should mention so then in the objective there was a we've made some of their arguments already there was a, a response piece to that um letter that came out and um one of the, i'll just i'll just quote from it uh the content of the letter does not deal with the problem of power who has it and who does not harper's is a prestigious institution backed by money and influence. Harper's has decided to bestow its platform not to marginalize people, but to people who already have large followings and plenty of opportunities to make their views heard. Ironically, these influential people then use that platform to complain that they're being silenced, Um, which I think is, you know, kind of goes back to your first point, Christian, which is that like, okay, famous people, you're so silenced, you're so marginalized, Um, which I'm of two minds there, which is... They, you know, they are self-centric. And I think the Al Franken um, example is is a good one because for me personally, because I kind of remember at the time feeling like I had to be on board with a burn it down. He should go. Oh, my God. Kill that guy. It's over for him and all men. Like, I felt that pressure a little bit. And um, I... And, and and if and if I if I succumb to that pressure, I'm not proud of it. Um, but that pressure is this thing that we're talking about, and I'm sure it functions on everybody at, at you know uh, where they might abandon their principles a little bit. You know what I mean? Because they're afraid of the internet. Even in in the last segment, when I was saying we you know we want p- police presence, not police brutality, I then had a fury of worry in my mind that, oh my God, I'm going to get canceled because I suggested that police could be a good thing that we might want. You know what I'm saying? I am still worried about how that sentiment is being understood um, because it's not something that can be, that could be commented on. I think usefully in a tweet, it's not a conversation that could be usefully had in social media. I think it really requires a conversation like what we're having. I do agree that, you know, nuance is verboten and that there is an appeal. And again, again, to me, this is a product of, of social media and how it's warped our interactions in general more than any sort of political movement happening right now, is that there is – if you express any nuance, you are leaving your flank open for attack – from people who really just want to attack, you know, who just want to snipe, you know. So if you say, 
you know, unless you're either saying A or Z, if you say any letter between A and Z, you are then leaving yourself open to be dunked on by somebody who's just looking to dunk. And I'm not going to say dunk anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because I know that's like a basketball reference, but to me, it's a donut reference. (laughs) (laughs) Dunking on? That sounds delicious. <laughs> oh, look at how much coffee got on that donut. Like that's how I took all of that. Oh um Cena, <laughs> what were you going to say? But I was saying like what we're seeing now is even to that point of like who has power now. What's interesting is that like these groups especially in like academic institutions where you're where like universities are becoming more like corporations now than ever before, you have bureaucracies that are becoming powerful and that those are the ones that are creating a sort of power dynamic. They're mm. creating the oppression over certain types of speech or certain types of thought. I mean, I was in college opening for like Daryl Hammond or whoever would come to town in college. Brag. And uh, hello. Um, <laughs> he still partied then, so it was fun. Uh, but he was like, uh, you know, they would they would censor me. I was like, I'm a student. Here, you can't censor me. These are my jokes about my experience in my life. And they were censoring me. And so this is happening. Whatever. I'm not even going to talk about when I went to college. But, I mean, that's how long this has kind of been growing and developing. And I think when we talk about power, we have to to talk about collective power that's happening and what that means. And if it asserts a binary, again – that's exactly counterproductive, counterintuitive than what we want initially. A lot of this stuff, people should go. Harvey Weinstein, glad he's gone. Bill Cosby, glad he's gone. A lot of these other people, you know, shouldn't be around anymore. Al Franken probably should have taken his hits and stayed in the cut. Took, you know, taken a class or two, apologized profusely, done all of these things. Would have still had him in the mm. Senate doing his job. You know, that's the kind of balance that we have to find. Also, Christian, fuck you, die. <laughs> um, uh, all right guys well do you oh, have a, a close shoot. closing thoughts from christian finnegan i had it and now it's gone ah! gosh darn it uh oh i was gonna say that one problem that i don't hear people discuss and again it's because of social media is that we live in this world now where 22 year olds hear and have opinions on what 52 year olds say that has never been the case before. These two groups of people yeah. would not interact. There's no reason that a college student should know what the fuck David Brooks is talking about unless you're a weirdo. <laughs> you know, and vice versa. The, these people should not be hanging out at the same party. You know, all of these conversations 20 years ago would have happened in isolation and nobody would know these things, you know? And so, of Segregate course. Segregate the generations. Yes. yes. That's, you're right, Christian. Here, Nobody's here. talking about that. Um, all right. Well, uh, before we end the show, I want to tell you guys about a really exciting race in Ohio. Thanks to one of our listeners. Um, Ohio's district number 10 is now represented by Mike Turner, uh, who our listener deemed despicable um, and is supported by has supported the Trump agenda he's opposed um, the uh, right to organize um, he's uh, opposed a $15 minimum wage restoring of the Voting Rights Act he's opposed a- aid to Puerto Rico in the wake of the uh, hurricane um, he just sounds like a terrible guy um, and 
He uh, represents parts of Dayton, uh, or I guess the entire city of Dayton is in his district. Um, now, his challenger is a young African-American woman named Desiree Timms, and she endorses workers' rights to organize healthcare justice, women's control over their own reproductive uh over their own reproduction um, and ending gun violence. She's been endorsed by uh, E-dubs, Lizzie Warren's guys. Um, so uh, I don't know. I haven't looked into her, but look into her. If any of that piques your interest and you live in Ohio's 10th and please keep the races coming. I love to hear about them and to tell others about them. Um, in closing, Sina and Christian, I would like for you to tell uh, listeners uh, briefly if there's anything that's making you hopeful, putting you on the spot. Is there anything in America right now that's making you hopeful? It can be dumb or grand. Well, uh, go ahead, no, you go ahead, please. Oh, damn. Uh, <laughs> I was just, I'll go, I'll go with actually, I know we made fun of the younger generation and stuff and they shouldn't be at the same party, but frankly, the number of young people that I've seen in Brooklyn, uh, here and like I'm on Washington Avenue and I see the protests when they were happening a lot, come up right my, uh, up my street and it is so exciting to see all the young people that are very aware of all of the issues that are happening today and they're very conscious about it. And there, there's a sense of community there that I know my generation didn't have because we were too busy, like, doing whatever the fuck we wanted and being entitled and blessed. <laughs> and, like, this world was supposed to be ours. But it's uh, that's what's giving me hope is that these, these young kids, they know what they're doing a little bit more than we do. Christian, is there anything that's making you feel hopeful? Well, I want to say for the record, you know, as a 47-year-old childless comedian, I'm not welcome at either of those parties, <laughs> either the, the 22-year-olds or the 52-year-olds, because I have not the adult concerns of the 52-year-olds, and I'm not cool enough to hang with the 22-year-olds. But uh, I would say, and this might sound a little bleak, the thing that gives me the most comfort right now is that nobody knows anything. Nobody knows anything. That the die is not cast and things change constantly. You know, when I think about, you know, reopening and what my industry is going to look like in the future, and it's very easy to feel pretty dark about things, but nobody knows shit. And so just kind of buckle down and, and take care of yourself and, and let's see where we stand six months from now. <laughs> Sorry, it's not um, too dark. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think just to give, give another clause to your sentence, nobody knows anything. So your ideas might be fucking great. You yeah, know, there we go. That spins solutions. it nicely. <laughs> um, and I, and I, I, the thing that really gave me hope this week that just like, I think I've been seeing headlines every day and it's been making me very, like, feel very warm about the future of the country is the wall of moms. I know I already talked about them, but the wall of moms in Portland. Wow. How fucking inspiring is that? Fantastic. Taking matters into their own hands, putting themselves, um, in harm's way, um, in just, uh, I think, you know, the most inspiring way. So it's so great. We have people that do that guys. We have people that do that. How cool, how cool that we have that in this country, people that would do that. Um, all right, Cena, where should people find you and all the things that you're doing? Uh, you can find me uh, on social at Cena Now, S E E N A N O W, on Instagram and Facebook. I'm Cena underscore G on TikTok. Uh, you won't see me. <laughs> I don't know. I just look at the kids play pranks on their 
for other parents and, and look at police brutality videos, uh, unfortunately. So, um, and then Fraudster's coming out. I actually just got word August uh, 27th. It's coming out on Spotify. August 27th. I'm yeah. so excited. So, Paul, uh, thank you. Christian, uh, well, where do people find you? After all my railing against social media, you can find me on Twitter at Christ, <laughs> at Christ Finnegan, because uh, I am of the world, even if... <laughs> um, uh, and if you are in the New York area where my wife and I are trying our very best to keep QED Astoria afloat through these lean times, and we've been doing live shows, socially distanced live shows out in the backyard at QED, uh, Thursday through Sunday. And, uh, so if you're in, uh, New York area, specifically the Queens area, check out QEDAstoria.com. Oh my God. Absolutely go to QED Astoria. It's fantastic. But also... Um, a socially distanced show in a backyard is all the more sweeter because it's just so difficult to achieve. You know what I mean? To get that live comedy in a socially distanced setting, it's just, it's it's a feat um, unto itself. So it kind of feels like you're a part of something really, like, amazing. You can say, I was there in 2020 when we were doing socially distant comedy shows at QED. Um, all right, guys, uh, you know where to find me and all the stuff that I do. By the way, I was on last week's episode of Love It or Leave It. I don't know if I mentioned this last week. I don't think I did. But anyways, it was a real fun one. Um, and it's still pretty relevant, so check it out. Um, and I'm going to be on uh, upcoming episodes of other things. It doesn't matter. And I have, uh, you know... <laughs> Uh, stuff coming out. I'll let you know. If I should, I remember, I'll let you know. Um, but what I would really like to do is thank the people that make this show a possibility. That is our wonderful producer, Anita Flores, our talented audio engineers, Andy Christens and Kate Moldenauer. Gabby Alter wrote our theme music, and Lily Fleshler helps out with research. We love to hear from you, Nation of Fake the Nation. Send us your feedback topics we should be chatting about, guest ideas you might have. You can leave us a voicemail at 33190. 1005 or drop us a line at comments at fakethenation.com if you like what you hear uh, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps people find the show that is a real thing uh, oh and your races your competitive races what are they hit me up comments at fakethenation.com that is it we'll be back in your earballs next week thank you 